May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Thanks be to God. Every week we say those words following the various readings from Scripture, following the word of the Lord. Whether that word is simple and easy to understand or whether that word is confusing, a word of challenge, we respond with gratitude. We receive the word with thanksgiving as a word for us, a word that brings life. I suspect, as Paul just now read that back half of Romans chapter 1 this morning, and as we responded with that phrase, there may perhaps have been a little bit of dissonance. That phrase may have been a little more difficult to say with conviction. Thanks be to God. There may be in our response a sense of embarrassment, of incredulity. Paul, yikes, take it down a notch. Not this Paul, Apostle Paul. The word is difficult to receive with thanksgiving, perhaps. When Nick and I were discussing this series in Romans several months ago, we talked about today's particular reading, knowing that it contains potentially challenging, potentially explosive content for us. I assure you that's not why Nick is not here today. But my goal this morning is really quite simple. I'd like to unpack this passage, this challenging text, in such a way that we might understand it better as God's word for us, actually receive it as God's word, as a life-giving, good word, right where we are. My hope is that by the end of these next few minutes together, we'll have moved a little closer to being able to say, thanks be to God, and truly meaning it. Our sense of discomfort, I think, regarding this passage can largely be grouped around three topics, wrath, relations, and negativity. I'd like to treat each of these in turn before focusing on a final fourth topic, an aspect of the reading, worshiping our way back. But first, wrath, relations, negativity. First, wrath. Last week, we heard Paul declare that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Today, we read that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. That is a sobering place to begin. The idea that Paul seems to be making here is that the word of the gospel, the good news that has the power to save, is needed because of this reality, the wrath of God revealed among the nations. Wrath is definitely not a popular quality. I have been part of various small groups over the years where there's like a moment in prayer where it's like, just name, confess the attributes of God that you love about him. I have never heard wrath said in that kind of context. When we hear that word, perhaps our immediate context, our immediate reference might be our own anger, which we often realize is irrational and kind of out of control, at the very least leading to all kinds of suboptimal outcomes. Why did I say that thing? I wish I hadn't done that in my anger. And we wonder, is the wrath of God irrational, out of control like that? One of the ways the wrath that Paul describes in our reading this morning has been explained is as the natural consequences of wrongdoing in a moral universe. There isn't anything personal or active with regard to the wrath of God on this understanding. It's simply the almost karmic effect caused by immoral, unjust behavior, the natural consequences. 
That's one way we might avoid the troubling aspects of God's wrath. It's just natural. It's impersonal. It's like the course of a river, unavoidable, natural. Yet this idea doesn't really pass muster. The picture here in Romans 1 is of God in some very active ways engaged, moving against wickedness and unrighteousness. Three times the phrase, God gave them up, is used. It's less like someone releasing a canoe in the river than it is someone giving it a shove downstream. There's something active, disconcerting about it. A few years ago, the much-celebrated movie Black Panther came out. I remember being struck at the time by the high degree of sympathy I heard expressed in articles and podcasts for that film's villain. The villain, Killmonger, not a very inviting last name, had designs on the world pertaining to injustice and oppression, using violence to overcome those who perpetuated violence and oppression. And there was a sense in many circles of sympathy, full acceptance even, of that character's stance and perspective. It was at least by some understood as a justified response. There was space in people's imaginations, in their hearts, for a response of wrath. God is not neutral. Within the canon of scripture, the wrath of God is best understood as God's settled and perfect antagonism toward those things that destroy, deface his creation. It's his reaction of opposition toward wickedness, ungodliness, unrighteousness. It's not this irrational, uncontrolled thing, but this sustained, justified response to sin. As Nick spoke a few months ago regarding God's jealousy, God's wrath is the response of love, love toward his creation against those things wreaking havoc in creation, creation that God loves, cares for. It's his reaction against wickedness, godly, ungodliness in us who are made in his image. The perfect kind of scriptural counterexample in my mind is the priest Eli in 1 Samuel. Eli's a priest serving in God's tabernacle. Alongside him are two of his sons who are horribly corrupt, taking advantage of people, especially the poor, as they come and worship. And rather than respond with justified anger, with any measured sense of strength or care, Eli gives them a pass. He lets it slide. That tolerance is a failure of love, a deficiency in Eli's capacity to love his sons. Of course, we all have examples. We all have images. Perhaps we've experienced them of that authority figure who is so far out of line in their anger, who abuses, seeks to control. We all have that negative example. But there's also the example of negligent passivity, a sort of laissez-faire, hands-off approach. And God, in his good wrath, he's not abusive, he's not coercive or controlling, but neither does he sit on the sidelines as people who are made in his image and who he loves destroy themselves. Much of Romans 1, the language, seems to connect back to the first three chapters of Genesis, the story of creation, the story of the fall. And there, out of God's abundant provision, the first man, the first woman, woman enjoy creation. They're flourishing in it. And they are given one prohibition. Not because God is out to kill their joy or to control them, but for their good ends. 
that he responds with settled antagonism toward death-dealing unrighteousness is good. It's praiseworthy. It's something for which we can be grateful. Elsewhere, in 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul writes about the end, about the day of the Lord, as this day of wrath. And it's building on this idea in the Old Testament of this day where Israel's God, Yahweh, would deal with injustice, would deal with unrighteousness fully, finally. And that day, for the people of God, was something longed after, hoped for, deeply desired. Because it meant that the evil that was so obviously at work in the world did not have the last word. It meant that God's good creation would not fully, finally be undone. It doesn't end in chaos, marred and destroyed. It meant that God cared, that he saw, he knew what was happening, and in his power would make things right. And here in Romans, the idea is that the wrath of that day is being made known in history, is being brought to bear here and now. Not just that God's care and concern would be revealed in the end, but that he's active, antagonistic toward evil today. That he opposes unrighteousness, ungodliness today in the world and in our lives. Think of the things that you have suffered. Think of the ways that the unrighteousness of this world has caused pain in your life. God was not on the sidelines. God is not laissez-faire about that. He cares about what has happened for you, to you. Think too about the ways that you are complicit, the ways that you are unescapably caught up in the evil of this world, the ways you wish to be free, but you cannot be free. God is not on the sidelines about that. He is actively opposed to the work of evil in your life. He cares. He's involved and active. So thanks be to God. Okay, so that was wrath. Whew. Second, relations. Let the hearer understand. Verses 26 and 27, they're known as a clobber passage regarding sexuality and marriage used to beat people up. That is not our hope, our intention today. And I'm sure some of us hear that kind of language and it feels hopelessly backward, retrograde. A couple of thoughts here. First, every culture finds itself in conflict at some level with the word of God. Every culture in conflict. In our time, in Western contemporary culture, where there's such a high value placed on the rights of the individual, where slogans of love is love find great purchase among us, the ethic outlined by Paul, by Jesus in the New Testament can feel hopelessly restrictive, probably even damaging, pathological. Yet the reality is that those convictions regarding my personal individual freedom, regarding the importance of, for me to express myself in intimacy as I see fit, that a variety of relationship configurations are equally valid, those convictions are wholly cultural. And they'd be considered totally foreign and wildly immoral and unjust even in other contemporary cultures right now across the world. And those cultures might very well view the biblical ethic, celebrating the goodness of physical relationships, elevating the place of women as image bearers, as radically liberalizing, as dangerous. 
Those cultures would have their problems with Paul and Jesus. They would be in conflict on other points. So what's all that mean? Simply this, that perhaps our visceral dismissal, our rejection of what Paul is saying here may result from our cultural location. And that is worth interrogating. That's worth questioning, especially as we seek to hear these words. Paul's words is the word of God. We need to interrogate our own assumptions that we bring to the word of God, that we might stand under it and hear it for ourselves. So that's the first thought. Second is relationships. Our engagement with creation, our engagement with our bodies seems to matter to God. The view of Jesus, the view of scripture seems to be that what we do with our bodies has significance. And physical intimacy is one of the most potent of God's created goods. It is powerful. And as such, that intimacy is to be exercised in line with God's created purposes, with his intention, in the context of covenant, in the context of his created order, for our flourishing. And the language that Paul uses here of natural and unnatural carries with it the notion of the good, the notion of God's created order, carried out then in excess and in distorted ways, distorting what is good for our own purposes, for our own destruction, as a result of unrighteousness, wickedness in human society among the nations. And that leads to the third thing I want to say on this point, and perhaps the most important. Paul here is not singling out individuals, but societies, whole nations, He's not making a claim about an ungodly and unrighteous subset of people, about this one group, but rather he's making this claim about the nations of the world, their cultures as a whole. And as the argument he lays out extends into Romans chapter 2, he extends it to all people everywhere, including the people of God, all of them standing together under God's wrath, deservedly so. So rather than singling out specific individuals as though they're the problem, Paul's primary point is that we all, the nations of the world, are traitors to nature. That the cultures of this world have each and every one of them exchanged the glory of God for idols. That they've missed the point of the goodness of God's creation and set their hearts on created things. They've distorted God's good gifts, misused them. And this idea of an unnatural relationship is used as an example, an expression of how we all exchange worship of the creator, wholly distinct, wholly other, for the worship of created things, the same as us, like ourselves. This is the trading of the truth for a lie. Exchanging God himself, who alone satisfies, alone saves, who alone can lead us into flourishing for created things that are the same as us and so unable to save, unable to lead us into flourishing. So yes, the relationships described here as involving intimacy with one who is the same as us, those are prescribed. Marriage as one man and one woman is this expression of God's love for us, different from him, across that difference, creator to creature, loving us. But the problem is so much broader, so much deeper than particular people, particular relationships. What Paul is naming is endemic among us all. 
we all make this absurd trade. In his book, Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes, the writer Jackson Wu has this to say about these verses. Paul highlights humanity's essential problem. We exchange the truth of God for a lie because we worship creatures, not the creator. In verses 26 and 27, clarify the fact that we honor one creature above all, ourselves. That is true of each and every one of us. Traitors to nature, traitors to God's good purposes. The wrath of God is revealed in response to this settled self-centeredness that marks every human person. So that's relations. And that leads us to the final topic of difficulty. I suspect this passage holds for us negativity. The overwhelming picture that Paul paints here is negative about humanity. It can feel like a bit much. Like, is Paul just a hater? And this passage has to be kept in balance with other sections of Scripture. Creation, where human beings are celebrated as bearing the image of God with great dignity, great potential, unique in all of creation. That is true of you. You have dignity you cannot imagine in God's creation, made in his image. That is true of you. And yet our passage this morning speaks also to a reality that we can all identify with, I suspect. That that image in us is marred. And the language that Paul uses suggests that the unique status we have has been exchanged for something more base, something less human. The list of vices in verses 29 through 31 are this chaotic description of disordered, dehumanizing qualities, corrosive to us, undermining relationships and communities, good things essential for our flourishing. It always stands out to me that you have like murder, hating God, devising all kind of evil, and then you have disobeying your parents right in there too. It doesn't feel like it belongs. But the idea is, is that these good structures of life, structures of creation, are being undermined, destroyed willfully by God's creation. And this is also true. Something is wrong in us, in our place, in the world. I read two very different articles this week. One was about light pollution. It was written in The New Yorker. It was about the ways that electric lights, screens, good things in life have radically changed the way we engage with the night sky, have disrupted people's sleep and the ways that they function. It was a picture of kind of disorder in our relationship with creation, despite our best intentions. The other article was about people's fascination with the reality television show, Temptation Island. I'll leave you to figure out in which article the quote, it's a train wreck, but I just can't look away, appeared. <laughs> both these articles, they're very different, but what they both illustrate was in some way the truth of what we're seeing in Romans 1. The old truth this letter reminds us of, that something is off in our relationship to the world around us and in our very selves. Futility marks our thinking and our appetites. I'm not saying that watching Temptation Island is the same as worshiping the golden calf, but I'm not not saying it either. And the whole article is about people naming the dehumanizing, destructive aspects of the show, but then being unable to look away. 
recognizing it as folly, as it celebrates destructive patterns for relationships, as it exploits people who very clearly need some help, need some compassion, but celebrating it, consuming it, nonetheless approving of it all along. Paul, even in his harshest criticisms here, is naming things that we recognize in our world and in ourselves. There is truth in his assessment of us, in our settled self-centeredness, in our suppressing any truth that would dislodge us from that perch in our lives, in the absurd exchanges we all make. This is true of me. It's true of our cultures, our nations. And the truth, as painful as it may be, as negative as it might feel, is a gift. You go to the medical doctor, you go to the medical examination, and as harsh, as difficult as the news is, it is a gift. So we say thanks be to God for truth about ourselves. So thus far, we've touched on three areas of objection with regard to Romans 1 in a pretty quick way. Wrath, relations, negativity. I suspect, though, that that, at best, gets us to kind of like an uneasy neutral with the passage. Kind of like, okay, maybe I can take it as God's word to me. And just as we close, there is one more thing. There's something more for us in this passage, I think. There's this glimpse, this pathway, this way of worshiping our way back. At the root of Paul's diagnosis is misaligned worship. This failure to honor and glorify the true source of the goodness we experience in the world. Paul is not here encouraging some anti-physical, anti-material spirituality. Rather, he names the material visible world as revealing God's glory, his power, his nature, his artistry on display in the world around us. So magnificent, so wondrous, such a blessing that we can't help but worship. Worship, he seems to suggest, is the fitting response to the world around us, its goodness and beauty, but not worship of creation. Worship, rather, of the one who is the author of that goodness, the source of it, the one who reveals himself in the book of nature, who sets his glory in the night sky, in the food and drink we savor, in the friendships and community that give us life. For all these blessings and so much more, we honor, we glorify him. We worship our way into right alignment, right relationship with the world around us. Our family's been using these last few days the book Every Moment Holy in the mornings at prayer and at night. It's got these different liturgies. One of my favorite things about the book is it includes these set of prayers, prayers like, a prayer upon seeing a beautiful person. A prayer upon experiencing cleansing laughter. A prayer upon hearing bird song. And each of those prayers represents this kind of double move. First acknowledging the goodness of the world around us, but then turning us toward worship, toward the one who is the author of such goodness, the giver of such good gifts. That double move, that response is implicit in Romans 1 for us. There's a call, an invitation to this way of life, to worship him, creator God, 
And my encouragement to you today is worship him for the goodness around you. Worship him for all the blessings of this life. Turn to him in thanksgiving and praise. Name his glory, his goodness, his power. It's never too late to begin again in worship. Make that move, that double move, a part of your life. And yet even as we hear that call, we receive that invitation, we can all recognize, I suspect, that our worship is paltry and half-hearted. That we are, as we sung, prone to wander, prone to distraction, prone to make that absurd exchange time and again. So here we trust in the gospel. The good news that no twistedness in us or in society, no futility of thought or heart is greater than the power of salvation. And with the God who does not fail, even when he gives us up to our own passions, our own devices, he does not give up on us. And the consistent witness of scripture is that in Jesus, God is extending himself toward us, even when we have no interest in turning to him, even when we are unable to turn to him. The one lamb that is lost, he goes after. The son who abandons his family, squanders all that he's been given, he waits for. In him, we have our way back. In his death upon the cross, we see God's perfect antagonism toward all that would mar and destroy us. And we see, too, his infinite love, the depths to which he will go to bring us back. In him, we can fully, finally say, with all our being, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.